Welcome back to episode 66 of the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. We are on part three with Dr. Pamela Eisenbaum. If you haven't checked out the last two episodes, I encourage you to check them out. These are my favorite. I love this stuff. All I got to say is hashtag Midrash. Get the Midrash going. All right, enjoy the episode. You guys know the drill by now. You know where our social media handles are. You know where the website is. Share it, love it, and peace. Well, and uh, so, sorry, not to take it back to Parker Palmer, my favorite scholar. Right. But he writes a book called the the Heart of Higher Education, and he and he discusses the separation of of discipline and research from the you know his his whole bent is the the reconnection of role and soul, right? So you have you're a biblical scholar in your role, right? But in your soul, you are passionate about the Bible, and there's something about that, and there's and and I mean there. There are examples in this in, in that book about about uh, academics, about bona fide academics who um, there's a connection with Roland Soul, which is which imparts a different influence upon learners or upon students that uh, that reaches people in a different way. So you know when you sorry that just popped into my mind when you uh, discussed. Um, when you discussed that yeah. example. Right. Yeah. I think one of the hard things is that as as Ryan and I have emerged out of evangelicalism, I mean, we're we're outside the, the tent now. And and our voices aren't taken as seriously because we I mean, if to put it bluntly, we're sinners to a lot of people that we would want to engage with, like we're sinners. And so it, and we're just liberalized. And so we obviously can't love the Bible and we obviously don't believe it's true because we've sacrificed its truth for living this lascivious life. We live drinking alcohol all the time. I mean, I, I, I could hear this being said to me. Um, and How so long ago did you leave the fold? I officially I mean, lived to. five and a half years ago. From even okay. from the church and you were raised in it, mm-hmm. and then you're and did this like come to you as a sort of moment revelation? Had you always felt attention in your? Que- I mean, um, how for, does it happen for me? Yeah, <laughs> that's a long no. story. Yeah, <laughs> um, for me, um, it probably started about ten years ago as I graduated seminary and realized the implicit discrimination that was present in my system that in our founding was said that we believe women are equal, but in actuality, I was starting to realize without having good words to put around it, that that was just baloney. What seminary did you go to? Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City. And so we, we kind of lucked out in that our seminary was progressive enough to do a conference with some emergent leaders at the time. And I actually, one of the biblical scholars that was there when I heard her talk about the text, even though I had my degree, it was a whole new world to me. And so between this community that had expressions of art and creativity as part of their discipline and this idea that the text can be used in different ways and reflected on and interacted with in more 
in ways that have something other to do than bringing people to the altar. Um, I think that's kind of what opened the door. And then my husband and I both went to through a, uh, it's kind of a group experience kind of thing that we did uh, seven years ago. And so that was a big shift. And out of that started realizing that there was a disalignment between what my tradition calls the call and what that might look like and did I really fit here anymore and actually I I'm this sounds so horrible nobody hate me I made my first gay friend um and that completely transformed my life uh there was all of a sudden I was confronted with this reality of someone that was being seriously oppressed by the system that we were in asking me to help him figure out if he could even love God anymore um, and so did the, the biblical work of trying to wrestle with that and walk through that with him. Um, and then just as, as my husband and I continued to grow, we, we were given the opportunity to move out here to Denver. And I would say that being in this environment has made a huge difference um, in terms of having the freedom to explore and stretch and learn and grow and finding there were other Christians that were also in that same boat. Um, and then finding theology uh, three years ago and ah, being part of this okay. community and finding a, a compatriot in Ryan that said, oh, I, I know how you feel. I'm right there. And then finding some other friends that like Dan that also were in that journey. I think that's a big, and that's kind of where my postmodern question comes from is that this is a much different culture than Kansas city. I think that it's fundamentally different living here than it is living in the Midwest. And I think that shapes part of this discussion um, of how do I see the world? What do I see as truth? What, how does that uh, impact my day-to-day -day function and how I see the world and how I see other people? Um, and that it's still going on for me. Um, I just did a finished a writing project where I'm trying to verbalize some of this. Uh, for NaNoWriteMore, I wrote a bunch of essays about this whole journey that Hopefully, will be something someday. Um, but it's been a long process for me, and it's not over. But then I, we watched someone like Dan Rosado, our our podmaster, and he's a millennial, and he went through this in like a year and a half, and we're like, "How'd you do that?" Like, I would love this to be over by now. <laughs> but I, I think it's just coming up, uh, and that was a really long story. I'm sorry. Um, coming up against things where all of a sudden like all the answers you have don't work anymore. Like I had no answers for a gay friend other than that's not okay. And then I'm confronted with that. And this is a great person who loves God, who's seeking after a relationship with him, asking me, how do I do that? Well, I can condemn you or I can walk with you. And what I see in Christ in the gospels is that he would walk with you um, through that. And once you start walking with people through the ambiguity, there's no turning back from that. There's no, and I, I've had people, I mean, I've, I had a very loving, caring friend try to make me right with Jesus at my dining room table. And um, I know the intention was, was pure, but I I can't go back. Like, it doesn't matter how hard I want to. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. 
And and that's a story I hear repeated in my friends and the people that I work with all the time. Like, even if I wanted to, there's no way back. There's no way back. Right. Ryan, what about you? You were... I don't know what y'all are talking about because I'm still evangelical and I want to get to these myths about... Answer her question. (laughs) We got time. Well, I'm just... Yeah. Hey, I'm evangelical because I believe in the good news of liberation for all people, but I'm not evangelical in the cultural sense and I'm not evangelical in the theological sense, traditionally speaking, anymore. Um, So my, my journey has to do with, gosh, I would say about 12 years ago, when I was working at a moderately, I say moderately loosely, which is, that's how moderates, that's how, mo- that's how moderates want to be, right? Like, I don't want to take yeah, a side. Right. But it was still conservative because it was in San Antonio. Okay. United Methodist Church. Okay. And the great part about being there, it was my first full-time gig. I was a youth pastor. I had been there for a few years at that point after I'd graduated from Denver Seminary mm-hmm. back in 02. So back in 05, senior pastor and I had a great relationship. We talked about the Sopranos on Monday morning, and in addition to all of my crazy questions I had about postmodernism, because that was that was like hot back in in that time. Alongside of just lots, I I was actually finally reading the Bible for myself for the first time outside of seminary. Imagine that, yeah. Because you know this is how you you know here's here's the history, here's Christology, and now like next thing you know, like I guess I should start reading now, and. I took Jesus very seriously, and I still do, and I, I read the Gospels uh, over and over again, and then I got to all of this stuff about Jesus was a Jew, and then so <laughs> I called a rabbi at a local synagogue, and I was like, help me understand Leviticus, because this is part of our canon. So Leviticus turned me on to the Bible even more. Strangely enough, most people read Leviticus, Good and they go, to, they go to yeah, sleep at night. Right, right. So and actually, it's funny, so my wife is in the other room. And she's probably trying to go to sleep right now. And yeah. I used to... We love she, you, Lauren. No, it's okay. She can't hear us. But she, yeah. she's got her earbuds in. She, it's yeah. all good. But I would actually read her Leviticus at night. And she was like, what's up with this tent of meeting and all this yeah. blood? Because she's a, she's a doctor. So uh-huh. she's thinking about all the blood. I'm like, this is fascinating stuff. So next thing you know, I'm... It's it's the Jewish world that got mm-hmm. me into my slippery slope. Because then I'm, I'm, I'm reading everything within cr- the Christian world. Uh, like like a Janelle had said, all these emergent thinkers mm-hmm. uh, from Brian McLaren. Doug, mm-hmm. These are practitioners, yeah, Doug right. Paget and others. Right. And um, and I have luckily I have people like my senior pastor and other friends throughout my years of ministry who kind of came alongside me and you know and they were having the same questions too. So it wasn't. I don't think it comes as a surprise to. If my mom ever listen, she won't listen to this podcast. But if she was listening right now, she's not surprised by um, where I am right now because I think um, in a way she knew my curiosity for Mm -hmm. what else was out there and um, just you know it's I think part of that is once you go to seminary regardless if it's a Nazarene seminary or it's a more conservative seminary Mm -hmm. that I went to as well eventually that'll just uh, open you up to new things and moving to the Caribbean New York City I mean come on you're I'm I'm interacting with different people but it doesn't happen to everyone it, no, it doesn't. doesn't. You're right. But I mean, I because I've certainly a large number of my doctoral students are students who grew up evangelical, so they care very much about the Bible, and they probably had Hebrew and Greek in seminary, but they've either left it or they're like on the margins there. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that 
you know, they're an exception. And there's often uh, painful strains with their families and friends. And I've you know, feel bad for them. And I've often wondered, what is the profile? What, uh, you know, I don't mean to speak like a sociologist. Maybe there is no profile. Well, I think that's fair, but, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I think that part of it is when you move um, and you, you get exposed to a culture that's different than the one that you've been in. Um, and when you're on the ground interacting with people that are different than you, I it's one thing to do all of this theologically and to keep it all in my bubble and to go to a church with all the people that are like me. But the moment that I encounter someone that doesn't fit inside that, if I'm really going to engage with them in a Christ-like way, then I have to engage with them authentically. And that means my heart's got to be in the game. And I think that, I mean, at least for tons of the quote-unquote liberals that I know, their hearts are so in the game. I mean, that's one of the the misconceptions that makes me the most angry, and I get angry about this stuff a lot, is when conservatives say that we don't care about people or that we don't care, or we're just, you're just into social justice, and I want to be like, what the F do you think social justice is? It's about caring for people, and that's why we're into it. Because we see the guy that walked through Palestine, the brown guy that suffered, and he cared for people. He cared for women. He elevated them. He believed them. Oh, my God. Um, and those are the things that, like, if, if I'm living my faith in a real way, then I can't turn away from that, no matter how painful it is. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't evangelicals with big hearts that are doing all the things there, there are, but off, but, but honestly, we've industrialized and capitalized evangelicalism to the point that it's its own world. You don't have to step outside of that bubble to go around the world and do good things. You can, you can be Jesus to people through their capitalistic evangelical system. And I know that sounds super harsh, but like it is its own industry. And the, I didn't know there were other kinds of Christians doing good work in normal contexts until like seven or eight years ago. That's embarrassing. Why did I think that my view was the only one that mattered? Um, and, but that is, when you're in these bubbles, you, you can't see anything else. Or it's been demonized, like I can't read the Apocrypha, I can't read the Gnostic Gospels, you, you can't listen to so-and-so, even though they're also helping orphans, but you, they, you know, they're not doing it with the right reasons. It's all narrated to you in a way that you don't step outside. And so somehow I think a lot of us, we bump into someone or something that then we can't we can't ignore anymore. There's a, I mean, you know, you were talking about what's the profile, right? Well, you know, what what provokes a um, you know young Jewish woman to read the New Testament yeah. and become a biblical yeah. scholar, right? Yeah. So, and I, I mean, the this is such a a good question, and um, and you know. Again, like sociologically, what what uh, 
or even in edu- the education realm, like something I think about a lot as an educator is what convinces people that being unfinished is actually being unfinished is actually the the pinnacle of of educational prowess, right? Like you can stand on your you can stand on what you believe. Being unfinished or being uns- uncertain, truth with a capital T, right, is actually okay. And you can actually be in that place. You can stand on your piece of ground um, and and think you're right and feel ownership in that. Um, but we be willing to be wrong, right? Be willing to be willing to be wrong, essentially. And uh, that's not something that seems to be obviously prevalent in our current no, popular culture. No, right. And I think and, that's true in evangelicalism as well. Sure. Like, I mean, like I, yeah, I was in college in the late nineties and apologetics was all the rage and I was a debater. So I was very good at it. I didn't answer for everything. Sure. The problem is, is that when you take, when you strip away the legalism as your motivator and you strip away having all the answers, everything becomes it's unfinished an place. and right. you, you have to, that's a big mind. That's a, that's a piece that a lot of people can't turn the corner. Sure. They can't live in paradox. Mm-hmm. They can't live in a place where it's both and or already not yet. They can't live there. They, they want to know that, that this is going to be good. And if I raise my kids here, it's all going to be okay. And um, this will continue on and my family will be Christian and they'll all be in heaven. And those are very easy questions to answer when I have them all written down in front of me and I'm following all the rules the way I'm supposed to. Well, the other thing too, is that when people write, like you were talking about, you can't go back. Like when people cross over and live in paradox and live in, they find richness in that, right? Mm-hmm. Like they find this rich experience in that. And they, um, uh, and that's another thing that we miss sort of too with, with, uh, and I don't, and I don't know how to express this or what the answer is for it, but, um, Oftentimes, you know, uh, like for instance, I identify as Christian and I, um, feel pretty strong in that stance. Um, it doesn't fit exactly like, uh, into the perfect Catholic box that probably, you know, like my family would want it to fit within. But however, I feel, you know, after, after really going through like examination of like my faith journey and practice, right. I almost feel like a stronger Catholic or a stronger Christian now than ever mm-hmm. because of the examination. And, and, and you hear, you hear student, you probably hear student stories like that, right? Like when I really have examined and really have, then I've, I actually, I actually come around to a really strong place in my faith, but that story is, isn't necessarily told also yep. in popular culture, sure. right? And so, um, and that's an interesting, uh, phenomenon. And I'm sure it's probably is told some places. Well, there's narratives for that too, though. Like then you're, you're fallen or you've, you've Mm. gone down the slippery slope, the evil slippery slope. Sure. Or you, you just don't really love Jesus. Um, you, you need to read your Bible more and do more, more devotions. And if you do those things, then you can get back to this place where you actually believe. Yeah. (laughs) But... You know, once you get past that, once you turn away from that, um, I don't. I don't think you can go back. 
All right, Ryan, your last question. Oh, uh, no, there's not a lot. We have, there's so many. I even I have Nate's question from the group as well. I've got, we haven't even talked about well, salvation We're at, we're at an, an hour 55. So oh, man. I propose that we need to bring Pam back with us for another Especially one. Especially if there's another Spurs game on that I can watch at your house. Oh. Hey, yeah. The great thing about yeah. the Spurs, uh, this time of year, they're on about every other night. All right, all right. And then we can <laughs> practice Midrash as well. <laughs> So we could do another hour of questions and then practice midrash for an hour. All right. So I, I do have to ask Nate's question, but this All is right. this is us. We, we haven't even gotten to the myths yet. We should. I know. Let, that's uh, what I was saying. Do you uh, want to ask yeah. that? Yeah. Let, let's let's just because that's going to take a while. Okay. Is that going to take a while? It's, it's all good. So you mentioned that uh, some myths regarding the truth and the authority and the reliability of the Bible. So uh, that and you have four that you've listed here. Just wondering if you could hash these out a bit more, and I could even give you the ones that you wrote us as well. <laughs> sure. Because a lot of people they they will see that and they go, "That's not that's not a myth. That's the truth." Again, going back to truth. Mm-hmm. Oh, right about the consistency of the Bible. I talked about this some as well. First of all, as we've already talked about, the con- it, whose Bible is going to count? Who's, whose Bible is going to count as the one and only? Because there's already variation there. I mean, even Luther felt compelled to say, no, no, this isn't the Christian Bible. I'm taking these books out. I'm, I'm changing things around. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, you know, no great friend of the Jews, ultimately. And he took their authority for it. So, so al- already there's all that. Revelation has been debated for 2,000 years, for example. Um, so, so there's all that. And then I talked about, and this, this is often interesting to me in evangelical circles, because certainly evangelical seminaries, one thing I like about my students who come from there, uh, among many things, is they've had biblical languages, where is in our Methodist seminary, I have to, you know, convince them that it's worth taking biblical languages. So the awareness that the Bible isn't written in English, and people have translated it differently. So we can already, uh, so there's already that experience. But then again, as we talked about the other night, if you back it up, we have to decide what's even going to count as the text because we have all these handwritten manuscripts. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that they're just all wildly, that every other parable is about something completely different. But, but there's a few places, someone asked about the ending of Mark. There's a lot of variation. There's a lot of variation about the ending of Romans as well. So, um, yeah. So uh, I mentioned I think the story of the woman in adultery, uh, taken in adultery, is about to be stoned. The variation in that. So, so already even before we talk about, we argue about what it means. We have to agree about what it is in front of us. And an awareness of the complexity of what that is. Do you remember uh, several years ago, Mel Gibson's um, The Passion of Christ that came out? Among the many problems with that movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was mandated by our youth groups that we attended. So, this is where, when something like this happens, where I'm trotted out, I suddenly get phone calls from journalists and all these kinds of things. Among the many problems with that movie, one of the more, for some might be mundane, but that bothered me a lot, is that the authorities speak Latin. (laughs) The Romans speak Latin. Now, of course, 
the Romans do speak Latin in the Latin West, but in the East, they spoke Greek. So already there's a major historical flaw there. But okay, putting all that aside, Mel Gibson did a lot of talk shows and whatnot, and you know what his leanings are. And I heard him say, I think it was, it was Jay Leno or somebody like that, where Jay Leno was saying, you know, a lot of people have criticized the movie that you should have consulted scholars more, you know, because you got some things wrong and all that stuff. And he said something like, look, the Bible is written for everybody. We don't need scholars. We don't need anyone to tell us what it says. And so my problem with that is, so now I may be, you know, I'm a scholar, so... You know, take this for what it's worth. I mean, I we've all got our little we defensive need you, Pam. We need you. We need you. But he doesn't read Latin or Greek or Hebrew, so somebody had to provide a translation for him. So I mean, the, I couldn't figure out how he wouldn't. He having just made the movie where he's got people speaking, why he wouldn't have any kind of awareness of that, and so. So that's where a lot of that variation comes in, is that what Bible and whose Bible, the Jewish Bible's in a different order, does that matter? What counts as a prophet? What doesn't? Um, it's both what is a book of the Bible and then what the contents of that book are, which is something of a different question, right? We can say Esther's canonical, but Greek Esther is a lot longer and uh, more violent, by the way, than Hebrew Esther, um, which may be why the rabbis rejected <laughs> Greek Esther. But in any case, what are we gonna what are we gonna decide? Do you know in um, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's one of the most interesting texts I think is called the Genesis Apocryphon. I'm not sure who gave it that name, but it's basically we don't have the whole text, but the the section we have is the story of Abraham, pretty quite faithfully told. But what makes it not just another copy of Genesis is it's the story of Abraham told as a first-person account where the writer imagines himself as Abraham. So it's, I did this, and I did this, and Sarah spoke to me and said this, and all this kind of stuff. But otherwise, it's quite close to the text. And scholars ponder... One is we don't think very much about it. Was this like an, a spiritual exercise? Right. Was this... Is this a, a weird manuscript of Genesis? Is it a commentary of Genesis? Is it like, we don't even know how to classify. Yeah, right. We don't even know how to classify the text, right? So, um, and we think that, for example, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Enoch, which is kind of a super apocryphal work, uh, though it is canonical in the Ethiopic Christian Church. I just want to point out there is at least one Christian community that regards it as canonical. Uh, the books of Enoch were very, very popular uh, among some groups of Jews and then subsequently Christians. Um, and also long, long, long texts, Enoch. Um, so we have so many copies of Enoch among the Dead Sea Scrolls, rivaling many copies of the Bible, that uh, many scholars now assume for the community of Jews at the Dead Sea, Enoch was a scriptural book. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, to say the contents of the Bible are absolutely stable um, not is not true. It's a false statement. Let me just 
point that out. We can then argue about just how much variation there is and how significant that variation is, to be sure. But, and by the way, evangelical scholars know this. They do a lot of manuscript work, a lot of text critical, they all know this. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Lifeway doesn't want to so, publish it, yeah. so nobody knows. I have had students at ILIF even so, I make my students buy gospel parallels. Did you have? Mm-hmm. Did you use this yep. in seminary? Okay, so so that my students learn kind of what's distinctive in each gospel. And I had a student once who really just a, a different student than the other student comment who really he's <laughs> like, this isn't the Bible. Why why am I reading gospel? I mean, the Bible I'm going to preach from that everyone's going to use in my community is a Bible Bible. Why am I, why are we doing this? And um, I said, first of all, you're going to be the resident expert, I hope, of the Bible in your community. So this is just a tool to get you to know your gospels better. That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to undermine, of course I know the Bible is the candidate. That's what people read. I said, but furthermore, your congregants might enjoy gospel parallels more than you think. I have gone into church, you know, to do Sunday school or whatever, where I'm talking about gospels, and I'll often photocopy pages of gospel parallel just to make it more convenient to compare a, a, a story, you know, um, the anointing at Bethany, what, whatever it is, because just seeing them in parallel columns helps people pay attention. Mm-hmm. They just pay attention to the story and the text. And so, I told him this story that I once was at St. Andrew United Methodist Church, which is a very liberal-leaning church in Highlands Ranch. And um, I love speaking. It's a wonderful community. And uh, this is a long time ago now. It's fuzzy in my memory. But I brought, I guess the talk was something to do on Gospels, and I brought photocopies of Gospel parallels. And we're discussing whatever we're discussing. It's something about gospel something and one of the gentlemen in the group there uh who's retired i don't know 70 ish or so says i've been a methodist all my life i've gone to bible studies i've taken courses at this church how come nobody ever showed me that there's a printed form of the gospels in parallel i feel like there's this big secret that's been kept from me and um, the pastor who was sitting right there, to, you know, and I'm like, I don't know. But I think sometimes people think in seminary what they learn is just, I don't know what they think, to be endured. Uh, it distracts them from Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, I don't thing. want to be Recent that cynical. But, you know, as I said, this is just a tool, right. the gospel, so that you learn things better. That, that's all yeah. it is. But when our people have a very narrow view of the text and you show them something like that, it can be amazing. Um, one yeah, of the things exactly. I did, we were looking, starting to go through Acts. And um, so I'm totally not going to pull the right word. Pentecost. We were at Pentecost and there's this description of where everybody's from. Yeah. Right, so I printed right. out a map that just had the outline of the countries and then gave them a couple copies of maps that had the cities on them with, you know, the distance and said, okay, I want you to make your own map. And they're like, I don't want to do this. so dumb, blah, blah, blah. And 
as we started looking at it and looking that you have people from Africa, you have people from Italy, you have people from Turkey, you have people, and these are thousands of miles. This is as wide as it is across the United States. And for many of these people, they never went home. And all of a sudden, like the, and this was an older group of, of believers. And they're like, wow, I had no idea how significant this, this journey was and this moment was for them. Um, and that's just one of those things that we all, we actually all have in the back of our Bible, but to really think about like, what was this like back then? We didn't have cars. We didn't have airplanes. Like, what did this mean? And, and that was just like, I think we have to be creative as theologians in our context to help bring people with us into those things. Um, instead of just seeing them as, well, why am I looking at this? Well, because it might open the door for somebody and you never know who, you never know who's going to respond in a way that, that changes their whole perspective on faith. Right. Right. You know, um, I once, uh, here's a good story. I was once, um, called Satan and (laughs) cleared a train, uh, a subway car in Manhattan uh, of um, missionaries, preachers. So I'm on the subway in Manhattan. I, I went to school at Columbia University, so I'm there doing what New Yorkers do, I'm reading. And a group, I think there's three of them. Um, this is this would have been the late 80s. And um, they're preacher, I, I don't know what exact version, but an extreme, so we're not, here we're not just talking about evangelicals. We're talking about, or my senses fundamental, you know, very right wing. Anyway, so they're preaching and they're going up to people in their face and New Yorkers hate this, right? But it's, um, it's fairly late in the evening. It's not a super crowded train at all. And one of them sits right down next to me and she starts talking and, and I don't, tell them that I'm a graduate student in biblical studies, you know, I'm a PhD student or whatever, but somehow sex comes up and, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't, you know, stuff that's okay, sort of there in the Bible, but I wouldn't say it's like central. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) it's not. Uh, So, and I say to her, you know, fornication isn't prohibited anywhere in the Bible. And she's like, don't be, of course it is. I'm like, show me, it's not, it's not in any of the laws in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And obviously there's a lot of stories of fornication. Things don't always go well. If, if by fornication, we mean <laughs> sex outside of marriage, but sometimes it just happens. There was no marriage. There's all sorts of things in Deuteronomy about after war, when a man takes female slaves, there's rules about how to treat them, but then they just have sex with them. I mean, there's no... So I said, there's there's a lot of rules about adultery. I'll go with you there. But that's different than fornication. And so then she says, yes, but in the New Testament, Paul has these sayings that, you know, fornication is bad. I'm like, the Greek word, it's only a couple times, and the Greek word is porneia. What he means by that is like sexually deviant, weird behavior. And he, I'd call it not sexual like, deviance. Not like an election that's going on today or anything. We're not going to give any examples, or are we? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Can you okay. imagine this 
woman on this train talking to a biblical scholar right. about the Greek word. Bi- so for- she doesn't know I'm a biblical scholar. So, and the other two people she's with are harassing other people on the subway car. And so, and she's got a Bible and she's flipping through it. And I can see after time, she's getting frustrated that she can't prove that fornication, that the prohibition of fornication is in the Bible. And she gets stressed enough that she calls to her other colleagues and she starts literally, I think she saw me as like a demon that I've, I'd flustered her. So with the Bible, she wasn't in control of it anymore. And so she's like, we, you know, she calls me some, she said Satan. And then so I only recognize the word Satan. I don't know. She used some other word and, and then the others kind of get up and they get off at the next stop of the subway. They clear the train. And then when the doors close again and we continue up down the rest of the car, Clap. applause. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for Satan. <laughs> You you should oh, come up uh, to campus sometime in uh, in Boulder and um, talk to some of the uh, some of the folks up there with <laughs> megaphones in the middle of the free speech areas and um, that'd be entertaining. I think. So I did tell this story once in a an intro class and this is right after Facebook like in the first year or two of Facebook spreading. And I noticed my students, this is what causes me to join Facebook because I started hearing, that, like, Dr. Eisenbaum says fornication isn't prohibited in the Bible. This just was my big sort of social media spread of all the things I taught them. That was what made a big hit. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. This is great. This is Thanks awesome. Thanks so much. Thank and, you. and I promise you. if you come back, when you come back, how about that? Yes. We won't go over two hours because, Nate, we didn't get to your question, and I apologize. What is Nate's question? <laughs> Wait, go I'm sorry. These, these are big okay, questions. All right, all right. So he says this. Just, and I, I'm going to quote him. With regard to the, quote, depends on what you mean by true, end quote, oh. discussion, can you talk about the meaning of the word true in Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And so what did that mean at the time that Jesus used it? And then how do you interpret Jesus? Yeah, that's a big I need time to think about that one that's anyway. A big one. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. If you pro- all you, you the only compensation I need is another Spurs game and I'll come back. All right, we'll do that one. Yeah. Nate, <laughs> Fantastic. So Nate, we'll get to your revelation question too. So here here we go. Gone in sixty seconds, literally, lightning round. So favorite <laughs> book of the Bible, go. Favorite book of the Bible. Uh that's <laughs> It's a toss-up between Ecclesiastes and Romans, which I'm sure don't go together. Least favorite. Uh, Least favorite book of the Bible would be Revelation. Most influential theologian. Most influential theologian, uh, Maimonides. So what books should people read when they're trying to make sense of all this this stuff, the Bible? I mean, lay people, I should say. They should read the Bible carefully. (laughs) (laughs) In what version do you recommend? I think there are several perfectly respectable versions. I I use it in the RSV. I'm on a committee now to produce another study Bible. We're having a lot of fights, by the way, over what that will look like. Uh, But... um, so I use that the most, but the NIV, though, yes, liberals, all, again, this is an identity thing. The NIV is a respectable scholarly translation. Easy there's, to read. There's now something called the Net Bible as well. Are you, for those of you who are online, the 
I think that stands for New English Translation. And this is a group, for the most part, of evangelical scholars online. It's a live translation. That is, that anybody can write. If uh, Another scholar who reads, you do have to be able to read Greek. <laughs> um, and disagree with the translation and argue and make an appeal and then a committee of scholars will consider that and change it and i find that interesting in an evangelical context because that means it's dynamically changing so you Living. might be on the site one day and go back in a month and you know john three sixteen might read a little differently than it did before yeah, Ooh, which we'll get to, we'll get to that uh, next episode when you're okay. on, which will be the like the right. fourth episode. We get to the genitive <laughs> cases of the nouns and oh, all. Right. The, yeah, yeah. Right. The Jerry True will appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> uh, okay, so, wow. So, what are you reading right now outside of the Bible? Uh, I'm reading. I have to review a new book uh, by a person I greatly admire, uh, Paula Friedrichsen. It's a book on Paul called uh, "The Apostle to the Pagans." It's a very scholarly book, so I don't. I don't know how wide an appeal it is, but I think she's, um, if not the best, among the very best scholars of Paul writing contemporary today. And I myself am writing a new introduction to Paul. So not, you know, path-breaking scholarship so much, but I found it to be more challenging than I thought because when you write an introduction, I think you're responsible to introduce students to a range of opinion but I also kind of I do want to mainstream some of the opinions that have been seen to be marginal I'd be in that camp but which there's a growing number of us who read Paul very Jewishly and I don't want it to be and oh by the way there's this little group of scholars who do this so uh, they've given me a lot of freedom in how to write this but it's challenging so but as a result of this, I'm reading lots of other people's introduction to Paul and comparing how other scholars have done it. Not really exciting reading for your average reader. Let but, me just but that'll say. make for a great yeah. episode later on. Is yeah. just the whole thing on Paul? Oh, we should totally talk about oh, Paul. I love talking Absolutely. about Paul. Yeah, I mean, this love is a good this is a good Paul. time for a, a quick plug just for um, Paul was not a Christian. Oh. Uh, I think that's appropriate to plug here uh, toward the end and uh, in. My only taste of it was with the wonderful woman who I cannot remember. Anne her Dunlap. Name. Thank you, Anne oh, Dunlap, yeah, who um, who uh, actually had some excerpts from your book mm -hmm. in the notes for our meeting with Brew Theology, mm -hmm. and it was phenomenal. Reading so uh, Paul was not resistance. a Christian. Yeah. P yep. Pick it. Pick it up and and read. Paul was not a Christian. Yeah. Anne Dunlap is wonderful. Uh, students like that, graduates like that, are what make being an educator worth being an educator. Jerry is, I yeah, mean, just, great. yeah. All Very right, cool. so uh, other than right. the infallible spurs <laughs> that you watch. That's right, they're infallible. keep it light, what are you watching? <laughs> I mean, Pope Pop, I get it, Popovich, the Pope. Yes. What are you watching outside of the spurs? <laughs> you know, that's funny, I'm glad you asked me that because I think students do form these impressions of students uh, just, uh, in the spring semester, I can't remember what I was talking about. I'm talking about something. I'm trying to explain something. In Paul, it was a class on Romans. I can't remember what it is. I make a, I make an analogy with a basketball game. And nobody's answering the question. I turn to the student who's a very strong student. And so I'm like, I'm like, 
Paul? What do you, and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm still trying to get over the fact that you made an analogy with the NBA that I can't, I'm stumbling on the question. I'm like, I love basketball. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I love basketball. Um, wait, what was your what, question? What, are you, what, are, you, what are you watching? Are you watching anything? Oh, yeah. So uh, the man in the high castle. Ooh, uh, solid. I'm looking for, I'm hoping there's going to be a third season there but uh yeah i watch um tele i do a lot of professional reading so television is a great is a wonderful <laughs> recreation for me so the man in the high castle i love the americans great um, show wow uh okay one of my most favorite shows in the last decade <laughs> There's some really violent show. I'm like I'm like having second thoughts about how public I want to go with this. Um, justified. Do you know that? Oh my God. Okay. You you have to watch. Okay, so Justified is finished running. You can binge watch it. I think it ran on FX or whatever. The same the same network that produced the Americans. And Justified is, a, and I think it has great theological overtones and ethical. It's about a federal marshal who um, believes a lot, who, who's, um, let's just say, killed a lot of people in the line of duty and argues, others have questioned whether these killings are justified. And so, you know, as someone who watches Paul and whatnot, but... There's also his nemesis is is the best character, uh, Boyd, who at least for a few seasons is a is a preacher. Uh, the whole thing takes place in Kentucky, another a culture I know nothing about, but it is embedded in that culture. And if you want to learn about that world, and Boyd is this preacher who starts a community and is just a fascinating character. So. Uh, that was just a plug for Justify. I don't work for the network. I have no. Um, yeah. Are you going to uh, go see Star shows, Wars? I will go see Star Wars. I love reading. Um, oh, I'm learning to code. Uh, I'm learning Python. I'm taking oh, an nice online choice. course at the University of Michigan. Actually, just for fun, yeah. just, uh, just you of them, but no well, big deal. Just, actually, just tinkering I'm, around with a little if, code. I, I don't honestly know that I'll get good enough to do this, but one of the things I want to use it for is I want to, uh, if I can work in natural language processing, I want to use it to pursue the question of Pauline pseudonymity of the uh, the Pauline letters that so many scholars dispute. So the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and mm -hmm. Titus. So natural language processing is a way in which you use computers uh, in rather sophisticated ways, uh, in some cases through unsupervised learning for it to AI. determine. Mm -hmm. um, that's right. It I to know determine. some people. Okay. I know some people. Well, I'm, I'm a total <laughs> yes, beginner. Yes, you do. But, uh, so those are some of the things I do in my spare time this was great was thank awesome. you so much oh, thank you so much of course yeah. yes it's basketball so uh, you can follow pamela eisenbaum on twitter at p eisenbaum that's e-i-s-e-n-b-a-u-m anywhere else do you blog anywhere or no i don't but i'm thinking of starting i did for a time and then i crashed it i'm thinking of starting again but 
you do a lot of writing already. Do. Yes, read her right. books, follow her on Twitter, and hopefully we'll have her back. Absolutely. I'd love to. Love to. Yep. Cheers. I'd love to come back. Cheers. 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 Cheers.